0: Exciting career in the food service industry. Me, server at Abilene Annie's Lone Star style steakhouse. You, smiling faces with alabaster teeth and glossy brochures and job search websites, expectorating word balloons that indicate the opportunities are endless and the skies the limit. Me, on my hands and knees in the men's restroom disinfecting an unconscionable act of bodily fluid-based vandalism by one of our establishment's fine patrons, or, as we are forced to call them by company policy, partners. I saw you on Craigslist, and on Builder and in the classifieds. We recruit only the best, you said. Be proud to be part of a winning team at Abilene Annie's, said winning team includes three prison work releases, a math addict, a raging alcoholic, and a 60-year-old shift manager who calls the 18-year-old waitresses sweet tarts and sugar lips, especially prior to complimenting them on the snug fit of their corporate-issued chaps. They have dreams, sure, but what they don't have are fixed salaries curricula vitae, or, occasionally, complete control of their motor functions, at their best, at their most winning. The dishwashers don't violate the terms of their work-release agreement with the busboys, the meth addict doesn't deep-fry his 10-gallon hat, the raging alcoholic doesn't challenge families of four to pistol duels in the parking lot, and the 18-year-old waitresses don't sob uncontrollably in the walk-in freezer. But... In the fast-paced world of food service, it's hard to give the employee training videos oft-mentioned 110% every single day, so occasionally we have to settle for the more human 100% and a walk-in freezer littered with icicles of tears. You suggested I join one of the fastest-growing sectors of the world economy a vibrant, vital industry, in which there's plenty of opportunity to move up the career ladder, and my success is limited only by my willingness to work hard and become a customer maniac. My question to you, however, is this. Do the rewards of customer mania sufficiently outweigh the indignities of its symptoms, i.e., are the mind-numbing work weeks spent performing on-demand lasso tricks, peppering one's speech with words like howdy, yeehaw, and y'all, and getting barraged every hour on the hour with sour cream, butter, and chives, and Abilene Annie's famous OK Corral Baked Potato Shootout, fully compensated for by a 3% annual pay raise, and the occasional employee of the month plaque hung inconspicuously by the framed portraits of Pancho Villa and a certificate indicating partial compliance from the Board of Health. Occasionally, in the grips of customer mania, I have found myself slinging howdies and y'alls with such frequency it's as if I'm inflicted with some rare form of Tex-Mex Tourette's, and I have to pour a Remember the Alamo iced tea on my head or stab my hand with a salad fork, return to reality, a reality where I have six tables of angry partners scowling at my howdy-infused ramblings and impatiently waiting for their checks. During more acute attacks, when I'm all but incapacitated by a desire to hogtie the greeter and brand her flank with an onion ring skillet, I have to decompress in the walk-in freezer, with the sobbing waitresses and the slabs of USDA choice beef, but I'm tired of bearing witness to my co-workers' misery, and I'm tired of contracting frostbite. In all of your promotional materials, a tiny blurb promised me a fun, clean, creative atmosphere, but perhaps I misunderstood. My concept of fun does not involve wearing company-mandated spurs and responding to partner-issued pig calls. My concept of creativity does not include selecting a different John Wayne pin for my tasseled leather vest and mindlessly reciting the appetizers, soup of the day, and drink specials. While it's true that the problem may be me, some internal dysfunction that prevents me from joining the league of Prozac-grinning, alabaster-toothed customer maniacs laughing it up on the career fair brochures. I have a sinking suspicion that I've been bamboozled that you, exciting career in the food service industry, are a scam, a sham, a fly-by-night operation like the toothless men offering me General Sam Houston's ashes for 20 bucks, at a red light stalled intersection. So, to prove to me your existence, why don't we both meet this Friday at Abilene Annie's? You wear red, and I'll wear a John Wayne pin on my chaps. I'll recite the appetizers, and the soup of the day, and the drink specials, and you'll ask for not just a job, but a career, and I'll know that you exist. That all my lasso-twirling and partner-ingratiating hasn't been in vain. That just around the corner, like Cheshire cat smiles and shining teeth, and a fast-paced, rewarding work environment previously hidden to me, a mythical golden city, El Dorado for the minimum wage, promising untold riches and 401k plans as far as the eye can see, And I'll take your order and bring your appetizer, the yellow onion rings of Texas, and somewhere a tumbleweed will whistle by, and a player piano will sing Scott Joplin, and the onion rings will look just like they do on the menu. Impossible. Mouthwatering. Delicious. Or, maybe, you'll stand me up, and I'll be left with nothing but my yellowed molars, and the cold embrace of the walk-in freezer. And when that freezer door closes, I swear to you, it's the saddest sound, the loneliest sound, in the whole barren Lone Star State of Texas. Cuban girl on the Miami Metrorail. I'm writing to inform you of my interest in seeking an entry level position as your casual romantic fling, or, if such an opening is available, your significant other. Although you have many competitors, such as the boisterous Stephen Sondheim-humming students of the New World School of the Arts, the weary, dead-eyed, Nuevo Herald-skimming businesswoman, and the occasional indigent, muttering soft services in English, Spanish, gibberish, or creole, your winning combination of looks sanity, and statutorily legal youth have vaulted you to the top of my list of potential public transportation soulmates, which I keep saved on my computer desktop in a folder entitled Staving Off the Unbearable Burden of Loneliness. As you will see in my attached resume, I possess a wealth of diverse work experience which, especially in a connubial marketplace dominated by one-dimensional men, makes me an ideal candidate for your companionship and affection. For example, during my brief tenure as a dishwasher at Gooden and Grub's Barbecue Chicken in October of 2005, I learned the importance of empathy and sensitivity to the common complaints and concerns of the contemporary American female via daily exposure to the expletive-laced rants and hurled silverware of my fellow dishwasher, Shanice. Edwin Dixie, where I bagged groceries from February to April of 2006, I educated myself on such varied topics as finding the pleasure zone, driving one's partner wild in bed, and, aided by a Spanish-to-English dictionary, como tener un orgasmo explosivo, by perusing the contents of the checkout aisle magazine rack during my lunch break. Although I may not be a gold cufflinked accountant getting off at Brickle or a distinguished oncologist showing off his stethoscope on the way to Civic Center, my oft-enlightening forays into the fields of telemarketing, food service, custodial work, and promotional chicken suit wearing have blessed me with a panoply of skills and talents that can unquestionably be applied toward the winning your gently murmuring heart. And, in case you are hesitant to believe my lofty claims, I have provided, for use at your discretion, a list of both select past employers and non-familial character references. Although my knowledge of the intricate inner workings of your personal life is severely limited, I have Through careful scientific observation, determined that I would be an excellent fit for both the bas relief outlines of your future hopes and aspirations, as well as the sleek European sports car-esque contours of your leave nothing to the imagination attired body. Like you, I commute San's automobile which suggests we both share a devout, environmentally conscious commitment to our endangered Mother Earth, and or a lack of sufficient funds for car insurance, already preternaturally bonding us together in the common fight for eco-sustainability, or saving for a used 96 Taurus. From listening to the tinny lyricism of Moe's deaf and public enemy spilling from your iPod earphones, I gather that you, as well as I, appreciate the finer things in life, favoring the erudite social commentary of thieves in the night and fight the power over the limited metaphorical complexity of bounce that ass and stick that thing out emanating from the ear canals of our fellow passengers. I acknowledge that you may have reservations about my inability to engage you in conversation make lasting eye contact or hold the same metal metro rail pole without visibly trembling, but rest assured that this bespeaks the shy and sensitive soul of a well-meaning romantic rather than the percolating perversion of a paroled stalker or the misanthropic reclusiveness of a miserable modern-day Quasimodo. As a side note, If you have ever paid any attention to me, you will have noticed that I never take the seats reserved for the elderly and the handicapped. Just another example of how my aim for you is true. Now that my clandestine, months moldering intentions have finally been announced, I would like to formally request an interview at a coffee shop or restaurant of your choosing. To show you I'm not just another mirthless, mass-transit face, but a unique, viable contender for the warmth and sanctity of your love. The Pollo Tropical across from the Coconut Grove stop is certainly one convenient option, but again, it's completely your decision. I've seen how you look at the other men, the ones with rippling biceps and thousand-dollar shoes and immaculate, wrinkle-free Brooks Brothers slacks, but whatever you're searching for, you won't find it with them. Do they notice when you switch from strawberry to peach-scented shampoo? Do they carefully read the instructions on the emergency door release in case it might one day help save your life? I promise you that, even if offered only a menial position in the margins of your heart, I will work tirelessly until I move up the ranks to friend with benefits, to special someone, to publicly acknowledged beau, to light and love of your life. Contact me via telephone, fax, or email, and let's make our next ride together be not of anonymous estrangement, but of passion, intimacy, and tenderness sending us far beyond the outer reaches of Hialeah and the hand-glazed ceramic tiles of the Palmetto Station to a secluded island paradise only accessible by the mythical Third Rail of love. I thank you for your time and consideration. was the undisputed sales champion of Gable's alternative transport. He could convince a jewel-encrusted socialite that Conestoga wagons were all the rage, assure a hotel heiress that anyone who was anyone owned a Tajikistani yak. Once, he even committed a real estate developer to a $50,000 down payment on a pair of premium stilts. He sold luxury dog sleds to movie stars, limited edition camels to the CEOs of major pharmaceutical companies, tricked out auto rickshaws with 24 inch rims to platinum selling hip hop artists. The world was his oyster, and he was the skin diver, plucking detritus from the ocean floor and marketing it as the choicest of pearls. But the pinnacle of a subterfuge, his best stuff. His A-game was saved for the impressionable and severely mistaken women who believed that he was the man of their dreams. His methods were impeccable. He'd show up at the Delano or the Shore Club on a company elephant, stroll regally into the cocktail lounge, hone in on the least confident, most inebriated woman at the bar with GPS accuracy chivalrously offer a series of reason-clouding martinis, and, after promising her the sun, the moon, and, for a limited time only, the stars, he'd sweep her off her feet toward ballet parking, where the company elephant awaited to whisk them to the imminent Bacchanalian pleasures of the night. In the morning, while his disabil conquest lay peacefully slumbering in the hotel bed, or on the beach, or in the back of a Gable's alternative rickshaw, Simmons would make his escape, leaving behind only the fading musk of Calvin Klein's obsession for men and a business card of one of his chief competitors. Perhaps the women incessantly harangued his competitor's secretary with tearful, sob-punctuated phone calls. Perhaps they launched a campaign of heartbroken, exclamation point-riddled faxes. Perhaps they even strode into the company's showroom, screaming schizophrenically, demanding to see Federico Pepe Villalobos, sales associate, the man who had swindled them of both the heavens and their innocence. But... This is mere speculation, because at Gable's alternative transport, at Simmons' home turf, he remained unmolested. He just kept on selling those pearls to the deep-pocketed swine of South Florida. Until he began to disintegrate. The first person to notice was Cesar, the watchman, who greeted Simmons every morning with red, spidery, café cubano-jolted eyes from his posts in the parking lot. Parece un poquito palido hoy, he said, slumped on an uncomfortable folding chair. You seem a little pale. Simmons told him he felt fine and proceeded to the bulletproof glass-plated showroom where unicycles and Pinewood Derby cars and a one-horsepower Shetland pony had been adorned with giant red ribbons to signal the advent of the dealership's annual holiday sale. Simmons sat at his desk, running some numbers on an 89 Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, when Arnelli's, the receptionist, arrived and asked if Simmons was participating in the secret Santa exchange this year. "'No,' he said. "'I never get anything good.'" "'Okay,' said Arnellis, crossing Simmons off her list. "'By the way, are you feeling okay? "'Your face, it looks... faded.'" This pattern continued as the rest of the staff arrived. The sales associates, the business manager, Simmons's supervisor— they all chipped in their two cents on his new, apparent ghostliness— offering various palliatives—coffee, time off, a zinc lozenge. Simmons stepped into the employee restroom, and their concerns were confirmed. His skin looked spectral, sapped of its color, as if God had been tampering with his brightness and contrast settings. Simmons splashed some water on his face, slapped his cheeks, and returned to the showroom trying to ignore his co-workers curious glances but as much as he tried to focus his thoughts on the day's impending work he couldn't displace that haunted cadaverous visage staring back at him in the immaculately shined bathroom mirror that day simmons made no sales failing to close the deal on a carnival bumper car with a south beach trophy wife who normally would have been putty, his expensively lotioned hands. Simmons exhaustively illuminated the bumper car's numerous selling points, its compact size, its unique design, its 5-star NHTSA frontal crash rating, but the entire time, his copper-skinned, silicone-infused prey merely ogled Simmons's ethereal skin like the salesman ogled her chest. Simmons's lips were moving, his larynx was emitting sound, but his meaning was lost, like a foreign film stripped of its subtitles. But whereas the trophy wife at least gave Simmons a chance, the other customers avoided him completely, gravitating toward Adolfo and Gonzalo and Jaime, the salesman with ruddy cheeks, full-hued vitality, the healthy, glowing epidermis' success. When the dealership closed and Simmons' commission-rich co-workers headed for a downtown bar to celebrate their tactical victories, Simmons remained at his desk, hoping this was all a dream, that the brightly lit showroom would devolve, like Simmons, into darkness, until the flick of a switch restored them both to their rightful, God-given, opacity. Unfortunately, the following morning offered no such redemption. In fact, Simmons was even more translucent and phantasmal than he was the day before. He struggled through the week, giving his impassioned sales pitches to anyone who would listen. Maintenance personnel, FedEx deliverymen, the guy who trimmed the parking lot's hedges, but by Friday, He had failed to record a single sale, and had made a number of customers' children run screaming from the dealership, in terror. For three nights as a therapeutic release, Simmons had taken the company elephant to the Delano Hotel on concupiscent safari, searching for solace of the flesh, but his normally yielding victims merely laughed at him. Pouring their mojitos and cosmopolitans and sex on the beaches over his diaphanous, disappearing head to see if he was actually real. He remained there on the bar stool, damp, humiliated, and reeking of alcohol and tropical fruit until the drunken patrons' cackling and crowing became too unbearable and he begrudgingly took his leave a dripping trail following his pallid figure as he trudged, defeated, out the door. On Friday, as Simmons haunted the showroom, now barely a wisp or a trick of the light, his supervisor called him into the office for what Simmons assumed would be an unpleasant and largely one-sided conversation. Please, said the supervisor, with uncharacteristic and ill-boding politeness, sit down. Simmons complied, and his boss paced back and forth along his desk, his eyes scanning the prominent framed landscapes of Alaska that adorned the walls of his office. Alaska, the supervisor said, land of the midnight sun, home of the mighty Inuit. Are you familiar with the Inuit, Simmons?" No, sir, said Simmons. Perhaps you know them by their more well-known yet less accurate cognomen, the Eskimos. Fascinating people, hardy, proud, stout and robust, occasionally polygamous. As the supervisor droned on about the Inuit, Simmons's mind drifted to the indignities of the last several nights, all those cocktails dripping down his revenant face as the objects of his desire howled in derision. These, the same women who had been powerless to resist his snake oil charms, the shell game of his love, now found him pathetic. Casper, the womanizing ghost, the specter of every man who had sold them the stars, given them nothing but a black hole. He had tried to reason with them. Look, he said, seeing as we both occupy a state of acute fragility, you and your dimly-lit netherworld of alcohol-soaked singles bars, and me and my twilight between existence and the void, perhaps we are in a position to better understand each other, to comfort one another provide a shape and substance to our lives that would otherwise remain invisible. But the women of the Delano just laughed and doused Simmons with their mixed drinks. The hypnotic allure of his features was gone. The persuasive gleam in his eyes all but disappeared. What was left was all that was really ever there in the first place. A shadow of a soul. The barest trace of a man. Look, Simmons, said the supervisor, your legacy at Gable's Alternative Transport is assured. Your sales technique is legend. Your record-setting figures for the month of October 2005 will be forever lauded in epic poems and song etched on the bases of Corinthian pedestals so that generation after generation may bear witness to the singular grandiosity of your unparalleled achievements. And yet, as they say, glory fades, and the truest of champions is he who, like the mighty Inuit, realizes when he has become a drain on the limited resources of his family, and decides to leave his igloo trek across the unforgiving wilderness and depart from humanity on an ice flow toward the inevitable entropy of nature. So I guess what I'm saying is, Simmons, are you a true champion? Are you going to step onto the ice flow? Or are you going to wade in the icy waters of mediocrity and professional decline, until hypothermia finally stills your once-proud and beating heart. Simmons didn't respond, instead staring at the faint outline of his hands, now mere whispers of existence protruding from his handsomely-pressed Dolce & Gabbana shirt sleeves. His boss took Simmons' silence as an implied agreement, said he was delighted they understood each other, and directed Simmons to Arnelli's to complete the necessary paperwork, as Simmons watched his fingers slowly succumb to the competing offer of nothingness. line scraping laborer you American dream. I saw you in the suburbs with your massive identical homes and your luxury SUVs and your 2.3 children playing on the freshly cut lawn. you were too adorable to mention. Did you notice me? I was trimming your hedges, resotting your traffic circles, watering your rhododendrons. I come to see you often, your homes awesome and towering, your two full children healthy and robust, your three-tenths of a child leading a dignified and meaningful existence thanks to the miracles of modern medicine. If only I could have children such as these, children who don't cry incessantly in the night, Who don't steal $20 bills from my wallet, who don't complain about their hand-me-down blue jeans being too tight to button properly, or their Christmas stockings being stuffed with packing peanuts, or their skin conditions being left untreated because mommy and poppy don't have health insurance. If only my children were like your children. Gelled hair. Catalog model faces. Well-fed. Cherubic content. You probably don't recognize me, but I see you all the time. On television, in magazines, on public benches and the sides of city buses. Yesterday I saw you at the strip mall, storefront after storefront, offering the riches of the 21st century. Cell phones, iPods, knickknacks, beauty waxes. GPS systems, 12-inch meatball subs and, try as I might, I couldn't peel my face from the windows, my eyes aglow, my heart beating fast, head over heels, in love. What must I do to get you to notice me? I scrub your floors, clean your toilets, change your light bulbs, take out your trash, beautify your parking lots replace your urinal cakes. Maybe next time, I'll wear a red armband, or a three-cornered hat, or a matador outfit. Then, once you've spotted me, we can go out for pizza, or fried chicken, or coffee. Yes, coffee. At Starbucks. I've seen how you like your Starbucks. American Dream, I can't stop thinking about you. All day long, I do nothing but envision well-manicured golf courses and seven-day Caribbean cruises and trips to Disney World with a wife who doesn't have to work 12 hours a day in a garment factory and 2.3 children who don't have to microwave convenience store burritos every night for their dinner, and friends with the Healthy, suntanned, avocado-exfoliated, vitamin-B-rich, spa-treatment-pampered, surgeon scalpeled look of success radiating, no, gleaming from their faces as we ride the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and the spinning teacups, and it's a small world after all, tears of joy streaming down our cheeks in disbelief that life could be this good, this free of pain and sorrow and poverty and disappointment. American Dream, I'm a good man, a hard worker. If you only got to know me, I'm certain you would like me. I'll be true to you, care for you when you're sick, lift you when you fall, Brighten your days and illuminate your nights. I'll do anything for you. Anything. My heart beats at your command. Just give me one chance, American Dream. That's all that I ask. Remember, red armband. I'll be waiting out back, behind the dumpsters.